It's law and grace. And I stated a couple weeks ago that our goal in this series is to help us read our Bibles. It's vital that we read the Bible in a way that the Bible sets itself up as. And so law and grace are massive themes that course throughout the whole of the Bible. Also, it's vital that we read our Bibles as Jesus read the Bible, which means we see Jesus as the point of all of it. So it doesn't matter where we're at, and we're going to be in a crazy spot this morning. Whether we're Old Testament, New Testament, we need to find Jesus in whatever we're reading. So a correct reading will lead us to to Jesus and beckon us to trust him. That's the goal of the whole of the Bible. And so we read the Bible this way because this is how Jesus taught his followers to read the Bible. So Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So everything that's written in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the point of the whole Old Testament. So as we read the the Old Testament, we should be able to see glimpses, see hints, see foreshadowings that are pointing towards Jesus because all of that is ultimately fulfilled in him. He is the point. So we should be able to see him. And today, we're gonna be in an Old Testament book called Judges. Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. So I want to give just a brief context here about this book. It is one of the darker books of the Bible. It is grotesque at many points throughout the book. You won't find verses from the book of Judges on a coffee cup, ever, okay? Soon after God, so context of Judges is soon after God brought Israel into the land of promise, his people turned on him. And this is not surprising because this is what they had repeatedly done prior to this time. The period of the judges was a time where Israel's sin led to them being oppressed by a foreign king or a foreign nation. So they would be oppressed and they would cry out to God, help us. God would send a deliverer known as a judge and then they'd have rest for a period of time for 40 or 80 years. But then this whole cycle would start over again. They would sin. They'd be oppressed by a foreign king, foreign nation. Then they'd cry out to God. God would send a judge. And this happened over and over. Now the judges that God sent to Israel during this time were not people who wore black robes in a courtroom. So don't think of that type of judge. They were military captains. They were tribal chiefs. And through the use of force and fighting, they would deliver Israel from oppression. They were deliverers. So hear Jesus. When we talk about judges, hear Jesus. They are a type of Jesus beforehand. Not ultimately Jesus, obviously, but a type of him. Okay. In the book of Judges, this is just a really crude, simple, interpretational tool that we can use. Okay? So the judges point to Jesus. Israel and sometimes the judges give us a picture of ourselves. So that's how we read ourselves into this story is Israel. Other nations, the foreign oppressors, give us pictures of sin and death. And then 
land and rest are pervasive themes throughout the book of Judges, and they point to the idea of salvation. Okay, let me read our verses. This is a crazy story, you guys. So, Judges 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him, Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And Eglon the king commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this story. Uh, I don't even have to say I think. Thank you for this story, as wild as it is. I pray we would hear the gospel, we'd hear grace in this. I pray that we also would be able to be warned about law as well. So would you make this apparent to us? Would you build our faith in Jesus? And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Okay. A little interesting, eh? Michael's smiling, he's like, well, I want to see what you do with this. <laughs> so just a brief summary here. So Israel sinned against God. And Eglon, the king of Moab, is the instrument of judgment. And this oppression, this judgment went on for 18 years. On one of their trips, Israel's trips, to make payment to Eglon, one man, Ehud, takes matters into his own hands. 
and specifically his left hand. Did you notice that? That was mentioned a couple times in there. Um, he sneakily and unthinkably is able to have a moment alone with the king, and he kills Eglon, of whom we get a number of interesting details regarding his girth and what happens when he dies. Eventually, his servants check on him on Eglon only to find him dead. And all of this led to the freedom of Israel for the next 80 years. Okay, so many interesting details. In this series, we're drawing a strong contrast between law and grace. And there are facets of this story that help us to flesh this out. So let's draw out some ways in which we see law and its implications in this story. So first of all, we talked a couple weeks ago about this idea how disobedience leads to a curse. Okay, and that's what we see going on here. Israel disobeys and they are cursed because of their sin. We see this in, uh, going back a couple weeks, I mentioned, I pulled this out from Deuteronomy 28. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. Okay? Follow the law, follow the rule, you'll be blessed. Break the law, you will be cursed. So, let's look at verse 12 from our text today. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, this is a perfect example of law. God set the standard. They disobeyed. Okay? And that was it. So then they were cursed. They called the curse upon themselves. And they were cursed specifically by Eglon and Moab. Now in this story, we also see how the law continues to require more and more from those seeking to adhere to it. So I had mentioned this a couple weeks ago on the slide that we have for the series slide, Law and Grace. And the ampersand, the and, is attached to the law. Because there's always something more to do. You think you obeyed the law, but then there's another thing that we are required to do in this. And, and this is what we see here as well. The law continues to require more and more from Israel. The whole reason Ehud was going to Eglon was to bring a tribute. Okay, so this was an ongoing payment Israel was required to make to the king of Moab. So the Israelites would work hard. They would tend their crops, they would tend their herds, and then they'd have to give it away. This is the law. There's always more to do, always more to give. And you can imagine how this sat with Israel. They were slaves already, but now they have to work hard and give what they're working towards to this king who's just feasting on it, right? This is part of the story is that he's a fat king because he is living off of their hard work. So for Israel, this would create bitterness, hatred, and hopelessness. And this is what the law does. If we try and live in such a way that we obey these commands, it will lead to our bitterness as well. Because 
one day we will keep the law, right? And we'll say, pat me on the back. And then the next day, we're gonna break that law and we're gonna go to God and we're gonna say, yeah, but what about yesterday? What about last week? I kept the law then because there's always gonna be a day, an hour, a minute coming at us when we're going to break the law. And it's gonna feel like this unbearable yoke for us. All right, as we read a story like this, we also contend to read ourselves in as Ehud, the hero. There's something in all of us that wants to impress God, that wants to stand out. We want to be high achievers. And the danger in this is we overemphasize our importance. We think the Christian life is about what we do. Some people then take it upon themselves to be Ehud literally. Some have killed in the name of God, in the name of Jesus. Throughout history, we can read stories about this. Others think it's their responsibility to defend God. Social media is filled with the defenders of truth who may have some right theology but are complete jerks in their tone. Jesus doesn't need us to fight his battles. He doesn't need you to be a keyboard warrior for him. There's a great New Testament example of this as Jesus was about to be arrested. Just before his crucifixion, we read about the response of his disciples to his arrest. We read, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. In the Gospel of Matthew, the same account, Jesus tells the disciples to put their swords away. Be done with them. That's not what we're going to do. In the book of Ephesians, we read about putting on the armor of God. But if you notice, the emphasis in this section of the Bible is fully on standing firm in what Jesus has already done. So it's a call for us to stand firm in Jesus' truth. Stand firm in his righteousness. Stand firm in his peace. Trust in him. Stand firm in Jesus' salvation. The one who is the word of God. So the, the offensive parts of this battle, this armor, is pray. That's what Ephesians talks about. Pray. It doesn't say go out there and start swinging a sword at people. It says pray. Call upon the one who fights the battle for us. Proclaim. Pray and proclaim. That's the offensive parts that we read in Ephesians 6. Okay? Tell about Jesus. Pray for him to do something that we ultimately cannot do in and of ourselves. The story of Ehud is not calling us to fight battles in this world. We are called to trust in the one who fights our battles for us. Jesus is the warrior. We are not. We are not. So the law ultimately calls us to trust in ourselves. That's what it calls us to do. Obey this, do this. Put hope in what you can do. That's what the law ultimately leads to. And this will not end well for us. So we can imagine 
the hero's welcome given to Ehud as he returned from his conquest. He had just killed the leader of their oppressor. And he came back and it says that he sounded the trumpet, which is a declaration of victory. He then was made the leader, the judge of Israel. Life likely could not have gotten much better for Ehud than it was at that moment. Power was given to him. Fame was at his fingertips. He had it all, in a sense. Yet in the grand scheme of things, Ehud was not enough. His victory, though it stood for 80 years, did not stand beyond that. He, as an individual, died. His conquest was ignored by his countrymen. The nation of Israel ran back to other gods, other idols, other pleasures, And ultimately, they were destroyed again by their own sin. Ehud, as part of the biblical story, provides a hint of salvation, but not full salvation. And so he points forward to the need for a greater savior, a greater warrior, one who would bring true conquest to humanity, who would bring a conquest that was far beyond what Ehud himself could bring. So if the bottom line of this story is not be like Ehud, if the intent is for us to encounter Jesus, if there's truly grace in this story, then the question for us is where is it? And this is really where I want to camp out because as was mentioned earlier, we should be able to see Jesus. We should be able to see grace. So we first see grace in God's response to Israel's cry for help. Notice, first of all, what Israel does. They cry for help, right? So they didn't fix themselves. They didn't stop worshiping false gods. They didn't try to present themselves in an adequate manner to God. They simply cried out in the midst of their duress, in the midst of their anguish. And God's response also displays grace. It says, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. What does that sound like? It's a resurrection language. The story of Ehud provides an example of physical deliverance. But that physical deliverance was temporary. But then it begs us as readers to long for a greater deliverance, a more all-encompassing deliverance. And this is what Jesus brings as he provides deliverance from spiritual oppression, from spiritual slavery. And the people of Israel, they didn't deserve to be delivered. They'd done nothing that would cause God to act in this way. The sin issues that had gotten them into this predicament predicament were still pervasive throughout their nation. All they did was cry out. And God responded to their desperate cry. And it's so interesting that this keeps happening in the book of Judges. 16 times over. They disobey. They cry out for God. They taste the goodness of God. They have rest and peace. And then they run back to their sin. 16 times over and over. And God, in his grace, keeps listening keeps responding. Today it's no different. 
we know something is wrong in this world and in ourselves. Our nation is a train wreck in many ways. A political disaster, economic hardship is increasing, mental health cases are skyrocketing. We become angry and lose it on our kids. Thinking of myself first and foremost here. Anxiety cripples us. Our bodies are failing. They're falling apart. The answer to all of this is not found in a national recovery of any sort. The answer to this is not found in us eating organic. Nor in telling ourselves, I'm strong enough. Or I'm smart enough. Or I can do this. The deliverance that we are looking for is only found in Jesus. And this is the repetitive story of the Bible. Run to some end of our lives. Run to something. Get bored with it. Be disappointed by it. Call out to Jesus. The answer we find in the Bible over and over is Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. And the call for us is to cry out to him. If this story teaches us anything, maybe it's that we typically cry out to Jesus out of convenience. Like we want to add him on to what we already have. Instead of crying out to him in desperation. Because a desperate cry will listen much more closely than a convenient cry. And maybe we need convincing that we really are desperate for Jesus. We come to Jesus in weakness, not in strength. We come to him in a way, in weakness, when, and, and able to listen to him when we come in weakness, not in strength. Okay, it's clear in this story that it's a point of emphasis for the author to let us know Ehud was left-handed. So that can be a detail that we can kind of just gloss over, or it can grab our attention. We can think, ah, is there something of importance here for us? And there is. This fact would have caused him to carry his sword on his right leg, whereas most folks would carry it on their left. And so it suggested this allowed him to more easily conceal his weapon. Now, in our day and age, you might think, like, we're coming from this, like, CIA, FBI, like, man, we know how to search people. We go through this every time we board a plane, right? We're getting tapped down in some way. Like, how could they miss this kind of a thing, right? Well, things were done differently at that time. And so all of this is pointing to an element of surprise, an element of surprise that Ehud is bringing. Grace is similarly surprising. Grace is unexpected. Like the Israelites, our sin has also brought down a curse upon us. We are born separated from God. We are born fixated on self and unable to choose anything that is not sinful or motivated by sin. We cannot choose good in an unselfish way, in a pure way, before Jesus comes and gives us that ability. Ehud did everything he could to right what was wrong in his nation. And he did something meaningful 
But even his efforts were insufficient. The reason Jesus is the better Ehud is because, like Ehud, he, could, or he effectively fought the battle. He did do that. Both of these individuals fought the battle. But furthermore, Jesus took the curse upon himself. Ehud didn't do that. The one who did not deserve the curse became cursed for us. And Jesus did this out of love. He did this out of grace. This is a picture of grace. And he did it to remove the curse from us. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 said that Brett was talking about earlier. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus knew no sin. He never sinned, and yet he became sin, the epitome of sin. He took the curse of sin upon himself so that he could give us righteousness. He could remove the curse from us. The reason Israel went back to worshiping other gods is because the curse still plagued them. But Jesus came to break it. He came to set us free from the curse. And in exchange for the curse, he gives us his righteousness. He makes us right. And to demonstrate the far-reaching effects of what Jesus accomplishes, we hear him telling multiple people in the New Testament, go and sin no more. This can be a confusing statement at times. What Jesus accomplished is so powerful that it breaks the power of sin in us. What this means is when Jesus saves us, when he effects this great exchange where we're given righteousness and he takes the curse upon himself, it gives us the ability to say no to sin. This is something that we cannot do outside of Jesus. But furthermore, beyond being able to say no to sin, this also points to this reality that's just beautiful, that grace is beautiful. Grace is intended to be riveting for us. It so captivates people that it can change our affections. So to clarify, this doesn't mean you won't sin. I'm not saying that, but when Jesus sends people out and says, go and sin no more, he's saying, that's a possibility for you. If you trust me, if you rely upon me, that can happen, and that will happen. That does happen in the lives of Christians. They're presented with an opportunity, and they turn away from sin and towards Jesus. And so the secret message that Jesus has for us is that he takes the knife for us so we can know true freedom as we never have. Because of this, if we let grace have sway in our lives, if we continually come back to the cross, and are repeatedly reminded Jesus' death is for my sin, my shame, we don't have to live in fear. We can stop lashing out in anger on our kids, 
or at the person driving slow in the left lane. We can stop running to that sin that we have a proclivity towards. But the emphasis isn't on us stopping sinning. It's on us seeing the beauty of grace. That's what changes us. Understanding that Jesus loves us, sinners, rebels, undeserving individuals so much, he was willing to take the knife of death for us. In a sense, we see Jesus in a couple of different ways here in this story, right? He, he is the judge, but he's also King Eglon, right? He's letting the knife be run through him. He's becoming sin. He's experiencing death for us. And this is really good news. This is the only way that we can be saved. And so, this ought to be our first point of gospel application. Because what this is screaming to us is, Jesus does everything When Jesus takes the knife for us, he's saying there is nothing we can do for ourselves. We are completely dependent on him to do everything for us in salvation. What we do is we cry out to him. We cry out desperately for his help to come and do something we cannot do on our own. So Jesus took the knife for us. Secondly, Spiritual safety and freedom, which comes through grace, is of infinitely greater importance than physical safety or freedom. Okay, so first off here, John 1.17 tells us that grace came through Jesus Christ. Okay? So spiritual safety, spiritual freedom only comes through grace. And grace only comes through Jesus. So, so grace is this unearned, undeserved gift. The salvation that Jesus offers us through his death on the cross is only from him. We do, we do nothing to save ourselves. It's all Jesus. This is his kindness to us. Our finding salvation and freedom in Jesus is of greater priority than us possessing physical safety or freedom. It's not a both and. Spiritual freedom is far more important than physical freedom. When Israel sinned against God, here in the book of Judges, they made made themselves enemies of God. And in so doing, this was a form of hatred against God. So is it loving of God to let them continue in this direction? Well, it might be just for God to let Israel down this, go down this path of judgment. But it's not grace, and we know that this story is trumped by grace. So what did God do? He got their attention. He raised up a hated enemy, Moab and their king, Eglon. He did this to lead his chosen people into repentance, to move their hearts from being against God to seeing their need for God. So, 
God was willing to expose them to physical oppression and harm so they might come to their spiritual senses. Seems kind of crazy to us, doesn't it? Do we need that extent to actually listen to God? I mean, if you read the book of Judges over and over, this happens, right? God saves them, delivers them, they enjoy it. And then they flip the bird at God. And then cry out for help. This is just what humanity does. Also, as Ehud locked the upper chamber after killing Eglon, we see a picture of how sin leads us into death, how sin kills us. We see our need for a deliverer to come and save us. But the fact that Ehud would go back to his people and lead them back to God's law might initially seem like a good thing. But because for them, their salvation would be based on them following a law, they became conceited. They thought, man, we're good enough. We can do this. And what this proved is Israel was more like Eglon than they thought. They were spiritually locked up. Israel was spiritually enslaved. They needed spiritual freedom. Now, the law is enticing to us because it makes us feel in control. It makes us feel competent at times. It makes us feel sufficient when we can follow it. And we all have this longing within us. The law is also enticing because it oftentimes feels clean, straightforward. Here's the law. Here's the rule. Obey it. God's happy with you, right? And when it seems so straightforward, a lot of times it feels like it's within our grasp. But the biblical story is given to us, and it's the same story over and over. It's given to us to show us that we need help. Our attempts to make ourselves clean, to justify ourselves, will only cause us to make a mess of our lives. And Eglon's a picture of what happens to us. Eglon, the picture of sin and death, was covered in his own mess. But listen, Jesus is the one who literally washed animal dung off of his followers' feet, off of his beloved. Jesus spiritually takes the mess, takes the shame of our sin onto himself. This is the only way we can find spiritual safety, spiritual freedom, to let Jesus be covered in our mess and to be willing, and, and, and the encouragement that for us in this is be willing to sacrifice your physical freedom, your physical safety, so that you can find freedom and safety that is far more valuable. So the law says, be like Ehud. Be the hero. Go do it. Grace says, trust in Jesus. When you make a mess of your life, when you fail, 
when you find out and realize you can't be the hero, receive grace. Because Jesus is waiting, ready to take the mess of your life upon himself and make you clean.